We have saved the best for last, and this is a, uh, a question and answer session. So what I've got on my computer is a series of charts and things that I often find are helpful depending on the question, but, but really we'll do our best to answer whatever questions you have. It can be about something we've talked about this weekend. It can be about something else related to the end times uh, prophecy um, subject, or, or really anything. And um, if I... Uh, Need to? I'll call on uh, Brother Dwayne to help with the tough questions, and uh, you're welcome. And uh, also, I would like to mention we're we're, we're trying to record this. Uh, I'm not sure how well my particular mic works in a room this size, an auditorium this size. Um, so if you could speak really loudly into the microphone, we're hoping the house speakers it'll pick that up. If not, I'll try to repeat it as well each time. Uh, only thing I ask is, and, and this is mainly for those that are live streaming and watching the video or listening to the podcast later, um, is uh, try to keep the question short only because uh, if you have a really long question from the person's perspective that's watching the video or listening to the podcast, it, it kind of sounds like an extended period of silence or muffled. They can barely hear it until I come on and repeat the question. Uh, so just try to keep them as short as you can. Uh, I know that's sometimes hard because you have thoughts and questions in your mind you're trying to formulate and, and you have to kind of set the stage for the question. But to, to the extent that you can, if you could keep the question short. So with that, uh, we'll open the floor. Who would like to go first that has a question? Yes, ma'am. Wait for the mic here. Where do you think the when, well, I tell you what, if I could answer that, when will the rapture happen is the question. And if I could answer that, I would be rich because I could go on the road and charge for it. Uh, so we don't know. We can't set a date for the rapture. The Bible teaches the doctrine of imminency, meaning it could happen at any moment. Uh, what we have been doing in this conference and what I've done in some of my books and other DVDs and things is, is talk about the setting of the stage, which indicates we're getting closer to the end of the age. And if we're getting closer to the end of the age and we know the rapture is the thing that happens next, so here's uh, that uh, chart. Uh, if we know the rapture is what happens next, then we must be getting closer. But we can't set a date. We just have to always look up and be watchful. Somebody else? Yes. Go ahead. Go ahead. Hi, yeah, I have a question. Um, I follow a bunch of different groups. I learned a lot. Um, I'm intrigued by the um, signs in the sky. In the heavens, Jesus talked about you'll see the signs in the sky. Oh, right, uh huh. Um, I think I'm going to put it this way. But um, the pole shifts is a big concern to me because um, the, the poles are shifting and they say it had a lot to do with Noah's Ark 3,500 years. We got these asteroids coming down, these fireballs, and um, some of the groups I follow have been predicting the train rail. So as far as the cosmic signs, uh, uh, several things come to mind. Jesus definitely indicates in the Olivet Discourse, as does the book of Revelation, that we will see uh, cosmic signs intensifying during the tribulation. So obviously if those types of things are on the upsurge now, 
then we, you know, we, can, we could extrapolate that we must be getting closer and closer. So for example, we, this isn't a, a stellar sign or a sky sign, but the increase in earthquakes, for example, uh, is a geological sign. On uh, Tuesday nights, I do a prophecy night in uh, Denver. Uh, we live stream it when I'm in town. When I'm not, we just do a video pre-prepared and then I upload it. But we're, one of the things we're going to be talking about in the coming weeks is setting the stage geologically. And I'm going to talk about a lot of these things like geoengineering and uh, weather modification and things like that. Uh, but the specific reference Jesus makes to the weather signs uh, is in Matthew 16. And that has really nothing to do with weather-related signs. It's simply an analogy that he makes in which he says uh, to the first century unbelieving Jews that... Uh, Basically, and I'm paraphrasing, but he basically says, shame on you. You can look at the sky and discern the weather, but you can't see the signs of the times. And so, uh, but uh, as far as, you know, Planet X and Nibiru and some of those, I, I don't follow that line of, you know, worldview. Uh, I think that the signs that we see spoken of in Scripture are supernatural in nature, demonic, the, the angelic uh, realms, and uh, the, uh, just the... Uh, you know, cosmic battle that's taking place, like I said this morning, if things are heating up on Earth, they're heating up in the heavenlies. I think that's how we explain the UFO phenomena. Uh, so chapters 9 and 10 in Volume 2 of Spirit of the Antichrist touch on a lot of the supernatural, phenomenalistic uh, types of things. But um, I don't think in this present age there are any direct prophecies that indicate we're going to see uh, any particular signs. You mentioned wormwood, which I mentioned this morning. Uh, that's uh, a, uh, this thir the third trumpet judgment during the tribulation where an asteroid falls to the earth. Uh, when we look at the uh, Apophis, that uh, asteroid that is supposedly going to hit in 2029 or do a near miss, depending on who you believe, of the earth, um, I speculated, hey, could that be the fulfillment of wormwood? And that's all we can do is speculate. We don't have... Uh, this is that, or thus saith the Lord, to put behind it. Yeah, so. yeah, I mean, the elite have their underground bunkers, but I think a lot of that is simply because they are preparing for, uh, uh, you know, nuclear war and fallout and the, the EMPs and the kind of stuff that they're going to foist on America specifically to bring down America. Um, I, I talk about in. Uh, one of the last two books, I can't remember which one, about the different scenarios that they have in their arsenal to potentially bring down America. We know they want to bring down America. That's been their plan for a long time. How they actually do that, it still remains to be seen, and when they do it remains to be seen. Again, their timetable is within the next few years, literally, like by 2025, 26, 27, with Agenda 2030 and some of those other things. Uh, doesn't mean that's going to happen. Uh, also, it's not necessarily the case that they'll use one weapon, so to speak, to bring down America that could be a, a, a cumulative effect of several things at once. So, yes, and over here. Yeah. 
So the question is, based on Daniel 11:37, which I put on the screen, uh, it is my belief that the, the future Antichrist will be a homosexual. Uh, I wouldn't die on that hill because there are a couple ways you could take this. Um, but uh, the, the, the broader question that you asked is about uh, how the Jews would accept it. Look, the Jews are going to be, the unbelieving Jews are going to be absolutely deceived. The worst deception of all ever in the history of humanity will take place during that seven year period. And it's really no different than the deceived Jews in the first advent. I mean, they clearly knew that, I mean, all the prophecies were there. I mean, I, I mean if, I'm, if I'm a Jew in the first century, you'd think I would go, well, how many virgins gave birth and how many you know, babies were born in Bethlehem of a virgin? I mean, it seems pretty obvious this is the guy, and yet they still rejected him and crowned him with thorns. So the fact that the Jews will be deceived, that's easily explained based on Jesus' repeated warnings in the Olivet Discourse. But... Um, but I believe the future Antichrist will be not Jewish, based on Daniel's whole teaching, really, the, the, the comparison with Antiochus Epiphanes in Daniel chapter 8. Uh, he's clearly a Gentile. He's a type of the Antichrist. It would make no sense for God to reveal the foreshadowing of the Antichrist through a Gentile that the future Antichrist is going to be a Jew. Um, the... Uh, you know, the, the devil hates Israel, he hates Jews. The, the Jews are the apple of God's eye. That's the biblical phrase. That's where we get that phrase, apple of your eyes, from the Bible. Uh, and so in trying to mimic the Messiah, it makes more sense that he would try to do so as a Gentile, not a Jew. He can't stand Jews. He thinks Jews are dirty and uh, ugly and whatever. So, uh, so Daniel 11.37, which you referenced, just says he will regard neither the God of his fathers nor the desire of women. Again, um, that could some people take that as he will not be attractive to women. In other words, he'll be ugly. But when you compare Scripture with Scripture, it seems that that's impossible because whoever this guy is, he's going to have a magnetic personality. He's going to be able to captivate the whole world and get people to follow him. So I don't think he's going to be some ogre that no woman would like. The other way that you can take this in the Hebrew is that he will not desire women. He will be a homosexual, and that's the way I take it. And, you know, again, when you look at his Luciferian uh, counterparts and accomplices on earth and all that they're doing to bring in AI and the gender neutrality movement, gender surrender movement, uh, to, to you know, go against uh, God's uh, Im image of God and man, it seems even more likely that this ultimate guy that's going to be his man of the arrow will be a homosexual. Somebody else, good questions, yes. And a lot of these, by the way, while, while you're bringing him the mic, uh, I'm just you know, giving my studied opinion. I, don't, they, I may not be right necessarily. I encourage you to study for yourself and good people come up with different viewpoints. If it's something that uh, is clearly a biblical answer, I'll tell you if it's more my opinion and speculation on these things, then I'll, I'll tell you that as well. So who's next, okay? Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, so the question is about uh, ChatGPT, which is an AI that is a uh, high volume textual based AI where you can type in a prompt and it will create uh, information for you and it's remarkably accurate. Um, there are various, uh, that ChatGPT is just one that's put out by OpenAI. There are others, uh, Google has one, Facebook has one, there are different types that are out there. But it is a rapidly changing technology that is stunning in its power. Um, they have similar ones for uh, um, imagery instead of just text. So you could type in a prompt and ask it to draw a picture and you could describe what you want it to draw and it will within seconds draw you an incredible digital picture which is changing the face of everything we do. It's changing the face of marketing, of advertising, of digital content creation, textual content creation. I get emails pretty regularly from you know, unsolicited companies saying, hey, you know, we have an AI that will be happy to write content for your website so you can be busy doing other things. You know? And uh, as I mentioned, we did a podcast uh, with a technology guru uh, some a couple weeks ago on ChatGPT. I encourage you to go back and listen to that. It's one of the most powerful podcasts I've ever done in terms of just uh, exposing amazing, some amazing information. Um, but he, uh, he talked in there about how you know, he's an academician. That's where I first met him when I was in academics for 12 years. And he talks about how he, he typed in, explain the difference between, I forget what it was, but something along the lines of Calvinism and dispensationalism or something, some complex theological prompt. And he said, it wrote a paper that had it been submitted, it would have received an A at a master's level seminary. I mean, it was that detailed. And so it has all kinds of implications for plagiarism. You know, back when I was in academics, uh, you know, all we had to do was run a student's paper through a uh, scanner, and then we, there were softwares out there that would tell you if that, those words appear anywhere else on the internet, and you knew they'd been plagiarized, and they would flunk, and in our case, they'd get expelled. We had a zero tolerance policy for plagiarism. But nowadays, with uh, AI like ChatGPT, they're creating new content. So you're not gonna find those exact words and that exact verbiage anywhere else. Now it's still plagiarism if you're copying someone's idea, but in this case, they're paying a, a service because you have to pay for ChatGPT to create the content for them. Um, you know, as far as how rapidly it's, it's changing, I think, um, uh, you know, I've had two guests on recently that talked about ChatGPT. And I think the first one was a little more up to speed on exactly how it works. I'm not, I'm not so sure that the data uh, set that ChatGPT, the OpenAI system, draws from is as dated and, and outdated as, as uh, someone was saying. I think it's, it's actually more current than that. But it's not like it's accessing the whole internet. That part is true. But they're just one hop, skip, and jump away from that uh, you know, already. But it's a, it's a frightening world where we're no longer really able to tell reality from fiction. And you, they, they can do it with voice. They can mimic your voice. They can do it with pictures. I don't think I got to it yesterday, but one of the sections of slides that I was going to show was uh, on how you, you really can't tell whether something's human or not. So it's one thing if you've got a, a robot that's a computer screen and a keyboard and you're typing in a prompt um, and it's going to return an article if it's a text-based or an image. But what if that same technology was inside a what looks like a person? 
feels like a person that you wouldn't, if you, you'd have to really look close to tell you're not dealing with a human being. Well, now you've essentially created life, if you will. It's artificial, but it looks like, so you can't really tell what's human and what's not anymore. So they can, you know, it, it has implications for uh, criminal justice system, you know, they can, they can, the prosecution in a corrupt system, which ours is very corrupt, can produce evidence of alleged phone tapping. It's not really phone tapping. They just created it using AI, and it sounds like you, and you're like, I didn't make that call. That's not my voice, you know, or video. They can create a video that was supposedly capturing you on a doorbell camera or something, stealing something, or, and it's not you. It's a video-created image of you, and it's fake. So it's uh, becoming harder and harder to separate truth from fiction. But I encourage people to go back and watch uh, or listen to that podcast. Who's next? Yes. No, that's fine. I, I, I don't think this is really picking up anyway, so I'm going to just keep repeating the questions.
Yeah, so let me, let me cut you off because you're just reading a long, lengthy speech about anti-pre-trib. So, and the people online are listening to this, they can't hear a thing. So it's been like three minutes of basically, it sounds like this. All right, so let me finish. So the question is, why am I pre-trib? Is that essentially what you're asking? No. Because I can tell you're not, so. Yeah. So Jesus, this is Right. Yeah, so he's not talking about, when he says this generation, the context is not the generation to whom he's speaking, as it is every time in any prophecy ever given. It's the prophecy about whom he's, it's the generation about whom he's speaking. So the, the disciples say, what will be the sign of your coming? He gives 14 verses of signs, and he says, the generation that sees these signs will be the generation that sees my coming. That's true of every prophecy ever given. I talked about that yesterday. Was Isaiah's day 800 years before Christ? Was the Jews that received Isaiah's prophecy, did they see the virgin birth? He uses the second person plural there too. You, you, you. No, of course they didn't. Did Micah's generation that received the prophecy about the Bethlehem birth of Messiah, was he born in Bethlehem 500 years before Christ? Of course not. Every single prophecy was given to a generation historically, speaking about the fulfillment to a future generation. That's the way prophecy works. You have to speak prophecy to a recipient. You're not speaking it in the air. You're talking to a person. So God uses prophets to speak to the nation of Israel about future events. And that's exactly what he did then. It makes no sense to say the second coming occurred in the disciples' day. Now, preterist view that you talk about, they, they have to completely obliterate the plain normal reading of Scripture. And what they say is, yeah, the second coming occurred in 70 A.D. You just missed it. What happened was the smoke billowing up above Jerusalem after the Roman t general Titus came in and destroyed the city, that was the cosmic signs of lightning stripes, you know, going from the east to the west. But Jesus says just the opposite. He says if you have to ask, has the Messiah come? He, he didn't. Because when he comes, everyone on planet Earth will see him and everyone will know. So Matthew 24, 34 which I've written a whole a peer-reviewed journal article about, says the generation that sees all these signs that I just gave you will be the generation that sees my coming. Not you. Clearly, Jesus did not come back in the first century. And he says, let's, let's call it up on the screen. I mean, this is what you have to believe happened uh, in the first century if you take the preterist view. Uh, so uh, let me make sure you guys can see it here folks on earth can, I mean, on line can see it. So when Jesus said uh, that he's going to come back, he, he goes on in verses 30 and 31, he says, uh, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. That did not happen in the first century. The moon will not give its light. And that, by the way, that's a huge prophecy because the Old Testament prophets said the same thing. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, that as long as you look up and you see stars and moon in the heavens, 
then you know Christ is going to still come back and my, co my covenant is good. I'm not going to forsake my covenant. You can take it to the bank. So Jesus is just quoting the Old Testament prophets. Uh, the stars will fall from heaven. I don't recall that happening in the first century. Um, the powers of the heavens will be shaken. The sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He did not come back in the first century. With all due respect to the preterist view out there. You have to allegorize the scripture, completely turn the hermeneutic on its head. This is what I was talking about yesterday. They take prophecy literally when it comes to the first advent. He was literally born of a virgin because you have to. It already happened. But for some reason, unjustifiably, they switch the hermeneutic to allegorical and say all of this is symbolic. He symbolically came back in the first century. Impossible. So the, the, the this generation passage is actually the simplest you know, issue to overcome. Uh, when he says this generation will be my, what, what's the antecedent of this? This is a pronoun. What generation? You can't just arbitrarily assign the one to whom I'm speaking. He's saying, you know, he, they ask for signs. He goes through all of these incredible signs. 1 to 14 is general, uh, sorry, 3 to 14 in Matthew 24 is general signs. 15 is the abomination of desolation. 15 to 26 is specific signs leading right up to his coming. And then he just gives analogies. He says, look, take the fig tree, for example. When you see its leaves begin to bud, you know summer is near. In the same way, when you see all these signs I've just given you, you know the return is near. In fact, the generation that sees these signs will by no means pass away till it's all happened. So, I mean, I respect people that disagree, and I, I just encourage you, like you said at the beginning of your, of your sermon there, uh, to, uh, to just read the scripture for yourself. And I'm not, I don't want you just to agree with me. I'm confident when you read the scripture in its plain, normal, literal hermeneutic, you will come at the same conclusion. Um, and if you don't, that's okay. I'm, I'm okay with people disagreeing with me. But uh, we don't want to leave the impression to our folks here or online that the preterist view is a viable biblical alternative. It is not. It is emphatically not. There's nothing in scripture that leads to the view that Christ came back in the first century. It did not happen. He's not coming back until after the tribulation. The other thing is the first 483 years of Daniel's prophecy were fulfilled to the day, literally, March 30th, 33 AD at the triumphal entry. 173,880 days after the decree of Artaxerxes, March 15, 444 BC. Why would the final seven years somehow be metaphorical? It makes no sense. So, I mean, there's just, uh, I would say, just read the, uh, in my book, What Lies Ahead, I have an overview of the different false views of the rapture. Uh, again, as I said this morning, it's not very comforting to think that the church is going to be here during the sealed trumpet and bowl judgments. Uh, that's, that's not, I don't know why Paul would say, comfort one another with these words. Uh, the Bible promises that we won't be here during the wrath of God. The wrath starts with the first seal judgment. So, you know, I, I, I don't mind people disagreeing, but I get a little animated when the implication is given that somehow this is something nobody understands, everybody has different views, and we've got to just accept all of them. No. Like I said, I'll tell you when I'm unsure about something and that I'm speculating. I'm not speculating about the dispensational view of Scripture. The church and Israel are not the same thing. The, Israel has not, replaced, has not been replaced by the church, and the church will not go through the tribulation. And, you know, it's okay if people disagree, but that's my view. Who else? Hi, okay, my question is, is our support in Ukraine 
Yeah, so that's a great question about Ukraine and Russia. And I did a, a deal that's been a year ago, right after the war broke out, at a conference in Tulsa called Russia, Ukraine, and the New World Order. And everything that I said in there is just as true today. So I would encourage you to go back and watch that for a longer answer. But the short answer is, um, you know, this is all a distraction. It's all a t an attempt to suck NATO into a broader world that will become World War III. They've been talking about that forever. Uh, they want to bring down America, so they're trying to provoke us into a war. Uh, both Zelensky and Putin are products of Klaus Schwab's World Economic Forum. They're disciples of Klaus Schwab. They're both evil men. Uh, I said that from the beginning. Uh, obviously, in any war, it's tragic when innocent people die, and there are innocent people dying on both sides of that war, as there are in every war. Uh, but we should not blindly support Ukraine any more than we should blindly support Russia. Um, we should, if anything, stay out of there. I mean, you know how many people through the, through in the last 270 years of the United States' history, how many countries have been at war where innocent people have been slaughtered and we've done nothing? We only go in when it's to our advantage to go in. So we cannot, we just can't be the world's policeman and stop every war. Uh, this is not about that. It's never about what it's about. It's about much broader uh, agenda here at play, which is fomenting unrest around the world to, pr to provocateur the next big uh, battle. Uh, and again, I'm not saying that's the only way they can bring down America, but that's, that's clearly a big weapon in their toolbox. And it's probably going to be multiple things at once, but one of them will be a, a military you know, incursion of some kind. So yeah, I wouldn't, I, I, don't, I wouldn't support, I wouldn't vote for supporting Ukraine. Again, you know, if you look at biblical prophecy and you see that you know Ukraine is just part of Russia back in, in the biblical era, uh, Russia seems to be setting the stage for you know getting more land in that region. And by the way, they've come right out and said they want to continue west. They're not just going to stop with Ukraine, all right? Uh, but they're simply trying to you know create a pathway, as I showed, uh, I think it was this morning, where they can come down through and get get to. Uh, uh, Israel and they Putin may not even know that I'm not saying Putin is, is is intentionally trying to be the fulfillment of Ezekiel 38 and 39 but the stage is certainly being set for that um, but I, I don't think uh, we have a place on, you know I don't think we have an ally on either side of that war good question back here a couple more just one? Oh yeah that's what I said a couple more okay Yeah, so the question is, uh, the angels are moral beings, volitional beings. They had free will, and one-third of them fell, according to Revelation 12. Uh, could that happen again? As far as the biblical record is concerned, no. We have no indication that you know, this, this will happen again. And as far as human beings ever falling again, well, once the new heavens and new earth come in, we all have our glorified bodies, and the new covenant is fully enforced, and we can't sin. Ezekiel 36 says, uh, that once the new covenant is in place, we will keep his commandments and will follow his statutes. So we won't have that 
We'll be perfect. We won't have that sin nature. So this is all coming back to a pre-fall uh, Edenic state. So I would say the answer to both of those is no. We won't be able to sin, and neither will uh, angels again. And then you had a question also? Yeah, I wanted to know if the Bible given for information about the thousand-year millennium when there will be, and I also like to know your opinion on the book Enoch. Is that important to that's not part of the Bible? So the millennium is, uh, let's see if we can call this up here so you guys can see it. The millennium is the first thousand years of the, uh, the you know, kingdom, the messianic kingdom. So when Christ comes back, he takes the throne. And ever, almost every passage that talks about Christ's return talks about him taking the throne forever is another problem the preterist view if he came back in the first century he'd have to be on the throne today and if he's on the throne today he's doing a terrible job <laughs> i gotta tell you uh this is satan's playground not the the the, the, the lord's uh, when he comes back then all the governments will be under his control and he will rule with a rod of iron but he hasn't done that yet so we get the term millennium based on the fact that revelation 20 tells us the first thousand years on the old earth are going to be a, a, a thousand years. It's going to be a thousand year time table. But that's not the extent of the kingdom. That's just the first phase of the kingdom. The kingdom continues on in perpetuity for all of eternity once the old earth and heaven are destroyed and recreated uh, as we read about in Revelation 21. Um, so the second question was about the book of Enoch. Uh, some people may know the book of Enoch is a historical book. It's not inspired. It's not part of the canon. It was not uh, something that the Holy Spirit carried people along to write. But it does have some pretty interesting data that may or may not be accurate. Uh, and it particularly tells us a lot about the, the, the fate of the fallen angels that cohabited with women in Genesis 6 and are consequently in tar imprisoned in Tartarus. And... Uh, uh, Enoch tells us, again, we can't say for sure if this is accurate, but that, that God has put another uh, archangel, uh, the, the Bible doesn't speak of any other archangel, uh, in charge of guarding the, that prison until these are, uh, angels are cast into the lake of fire at the end of the age. Remember, Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse that the lake of fire is prepared for the devil and his angels. So now it'll also encompass unbelievers after the great white throne, because that's what he's saying to the sheep is, depart from me into the everlasting fire. And then he just adds, which, by the way, was prepared for the devil and his angels. Uh, so, yeah, Enoch is a fascinating read. Um, but again, it's not something that we that the Holy Spirit can use to pierce our hearts. It's not quick and active, sharper than any two-edged sword like, like the Bible is. So good question. Anybody else? Yes, sir. Oh, you're trying to get me in trouble. Your, your wife asked you, so you're going to ask me so you can blame it on me if she doesn't like the answer. Yeah, so the question is about UFOs, and I think the broader question is about ancient aliens, fascinating stuff. Um, uh, all I will say on that is that, as I suggest in the book, and I've been studying UFOs for years, I've been fascinated with it, I do not believe they're extraterrestrial or bi biological. I think they are demonic, and they are, like all demons, able to shapeshift and take on human form and come and go. And then you've got the Nephilim, which is a different class of of demon in my view um, 
but, and people have different classifications, but we all kind of land in the same place, which is that Satan has an, an army or a legion of spirit beings that are bad guys, not good angels, but bad guys, uh, that are at his disposal, uh, even though the category names may change depending on how you view certain parts of Scripture. But uh, my view is that uh, they've always been around ever since they were kicked out of heaven, that they, Satan uses them in various ways and, you know, throughout the century, 6,000 years uh, in the battle. I think the closer we get to the end times, the more we see an intensification of those manifestations. And that's what I think 1947 was all about. As I talk about in the book, you had two, in the U.S., two major UFO sightings that really launched the modern UFO area and caused the government to establish multiple UFO uh, reporting centers and research centers, uh, Project Grudge, Project Blue Book, uh, and one other one which I talk about in the book that have been around for 70 years. Now they denied it forever. They denied it, deny, 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 even though there was whole massive high-rise buildings full of, uh, you know, cabinets full of uh, research reports and data as they tracked down every UFO sighting. This was the Air Force. Um, not high-rise, multiple floor building, but but loaded with nothing floor after floor but file cabinets full of reports from Project Blue Book. Uh, by the way, there's a documentary on, I think it's History Channel now that you can watch that, that goes into a lot of the real cases from Project Blue Book. But the point is they denied that it even existed for decades. And then December 16, 2017, the New York Times broke the story that, yeah, we've been tracking UFOs since 1947. Uh, we were just kidding when we said we weren't the last 70 years. And oh, by the way, recently we had the first you know, a couple of years ago, the first uh, public, uh, pu open to the public uh, UFO uh, hearings in Congress for since the 60s. So, um, you know, it's, uh, I think it's not surprising at all to me that these demonic manifestations go way back into ancient times and that they would, we would find them on, uh, you know, rock carvings and, and things like that, uh, petroglyphs. Um, but uh, the, where I differ with a lot of you know, non-biblical sort of UFO enthusiasts, or ufologists they're called, is that they take these as aliens that were, and they're hoping for disclosure, and someday they're going to land on the, the lawn of the White House and say, we're here. I just don't see it that way. I think it's, it's dimensional and spiritual, not physical. So, and I go into a lot more detail in chapters 9 and 10 of, of volume 2 on that. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. The comment is that the this uh, sort of making UFOs now open and public and mainstream, where before it was the stuff of tinfoil hat crazy people, now it's you know you got U.S. senators out front talking about it. Uh, uh, you know, I, I, that is definitely I think part of the plan to create a pretext for what will happen, what, what they claim has happened at the rapture. But I think it goes way beyond that. I think there are real, you know, UFOs. This isn't just made up stuff. There's just too much documentation. It's all over oh, thousands upon hundreds of thousands of pages, eyewitness accounts, um, and, and I cite those in the book. Um, you know, uh, it's, it's uh, 
I, I, Satan is pretty complex, and he, you know, he, he's doing multiple things at, at the same time. And so it can be simultaneously creating a pretext while at the same time being an actual spiritual cosmic battle at the same time. Before we go to the next question, I was trying to call this up while I was talking and answering questions at the same time. But I want to go back to what our brother over here talked about, about the different views of interpreting Bible prophecy. There are, in fact, three views. You've got the preterist view, which says that all the Bible prophecy was fulfilled by 70 AD, including the second coming. And then you've got the historicist view, which is the view essentially that we're living inside the bubble of Bible prophecy today. And these are sensationalist date setters. We agree with a lot of what they say, but the problem with that is it destroys the doctrine of imminency because it makes the other prophecies happening before the rapture. And if there are prophecies that happen before the rapture, it's not imminent, right? To be imminent, you gotta be the first one on the list. If you go to my appendix at the back of what lies ahead out there on the table, and one of the appendices is sequential order of end times events, guess what's number one on the list? The rapture. If other prophecies are happening at leading up to the rapture, it's not number one, which means it cannot be imminent. So it violates the, the plain teaching of Scripture on the imminence of the rapture. So uh, a lot of dispensationalists have taken historicist views through the years, but it's, you know, the, the more consistent view of interpretation of Scripture is the literal grammatical historical view, which, again, everybody takes the Bible literally, but not everybody takes it literally consistently. That's the issue. Uh, uh, non-dispensationalists tend to take it literally when they have to because it's already happened but what regarding future prophecy they, they twist the hermeneutic and make it all symbolic so I think the best view is the futurist view that uh, as I've said half of Bible prophecy is yet to be fulfilled roughly 16% and we look forward to that being fulfilled just the way the scripture says it will be in great detail including you know descriptions of the dimensions of the temple and the throne and you know we could go on and on um, but uh, you know Do Dr. John Walbert has a great book I think it's called the the prophecy knowledge handbook I think that's what it's called but it deals with every unfulfilled prophecy and you go through and just thumb through those randomly some of them you you cannot take any other way without completely allegorizing scripture I mean when when Bible you know there is a rule on when to take things allegorically. If the Bible says this is an allegory, such as the fig tree analogy, uh, then it's an analogy. But if it doesn't say it, you don't have the, the right to go in and just declare, oh, that's a symbolic, or that's symbolic. How do we know the cross wasn't symbolic? Maybe the whole cross, Calvary, Via Dolorosa, Golgotha, maybe all that is just one big allegory, right? If, you get, if the reader gets to determine when to take something literal and when not, it's total chaos. You can never understand the Bible. But when you come at the Bible from a, lit, from a consistent, literal, grammatical, historical approach, the Bible plays out in perfect detail. So that's the, that's the proper view of eschatology. Someone else had a hand up, I thought. Yes, right here. Well, you're in luck because we have a special right now. There's no limit. You can buy. <laughs> today only, today only, you can buy as much as you want. So. Well, I'm looking at your DVD series called What in the World is Going On, and I'm curious if you would make any comments on number five, preparedness tips, and number eight, why does politics matter? Yeah, so the, that DVD set is something I did two summers ago. And we've had it available, it's called What in the World is Going On. We've had it available as a streaming purchase for 
a number of years, or I mean a number of, a while, a number of months. Uh, all of the series that I do, generally they start out free. So if you follow Not By Works uh, and just get on our newsletter list, everything I teach, you know, you got, you got it. It's there. But then eventually after six months or so, we monetize it, put it in a package and make it available. You know, it's how we make our living, right? So we just recently, after having it available as a streaming option, turned it into a DVD. We were getting requests for that. And knowing that we were coming to the prophecy conferences here in Florida, we said, let's make it available for DVDs. So it is, um, we've got, you know, eight DVD or eight videos and there are eight DVDs. And you mentioned number five is preparedness tips. What we did there is we kind of went through different scenarios that could happen, how to prepare for those scenarios. We talked about the biblical principle of preparedness and how that does not contradict the biblical principle of faith. In fact, I have a chart that I show in there on uh, the, what I call the, the uh, I think it's called the uh, faith uh, preparedness continuum or something like that. And I talk about, you know, how, yes, everything ultimately comes down to trusting God. We believe God's going to take care of us. But how many of you brushed your teeth this morning? Well, you guys are stupid. Just trust God. If he wants you to get a cavity, you'll get a cavity. You don't have to do it, right? Well, that's, that's kind of the extreme, right? Obviously, we trust God, yet we do things that God tells us to do. And Proverbs 22.3 says, as I talk about in that video, the wise person sees trouble coming and prepares for it. So, you know, if we're on the tracks and we see the locomotive coming right for us, we don't just say, well, if God wants me to die, I'll die. No, we get off the track. And so that's kind of what that one's about. Then the last one was on why does all this matter? And honestly, uh, the information at the end of Spirit of the Antichrist, Volume 1 and 2, uh, in which I title it, Why Does All This Matter?, comes from that video. Uh, so, but it's a video form, so I'm explaining it, teaching, elaborating on it, rather than just writing, it, writing about it. Uh, but it's the same content, and I give, I forget how many, 20 to 25 reasons uh, and some of them overlap, but they all come from Scripture, why all this matters and why we should study this and why it's important to do that. So, yeah, it's a great series. I get into uh, secret societies, uh, get in that one. I get into a lot about uh, uh, Klaus Schwab and World Economic Forum. Uh, a lot of the stuff that's in the first three chapters of Volume 2 is in there. So it's kind of a companion model to my Spirit of the Antichrist books, but not nearly as in depth and broad it doesn't cover nearly as much stuff but it's it's some pretty good stuff so yeah okay somebody else oh you have a question So you, you, you want to watch, you want to know what games are demonic and what to kind of watch out for? Yeah. Wow, that's a tough one. Um, let's see, what game, I mean, obviously, yeah, well, I'm not a big video guy, that was before my time, but I can tell you games like uh, Ouija boards and a lot of the games that are overtly, meaning uh, uh, explicitly meaning they claim to be witchcraft and satanic and demonic those you want to stay away from um, I would stay away from all video games honestly it's not good for your physiology uh, and uh, what's it called I can't I'm deaf I'm sorry Bo poppy plate poppy I never even heard of it 
but I take your word for it. So I'm making a mental note not to buy Poppy Playtime or whatever. So first, my first note is figure out what you said, and then my second note is to not buy it. So thank you. Okay, anybody else? Here we go. You talked a little bit at lunch today, and complimenting on preparedness and clarity on your slides and keeping everybody focused and not losing path. And totally believe that you believe everything you say. Is there any, this is going to be a tough question, is there anything that you're sitting on the fence about going to research, learning, and teaching that you're just not clear cut? Sure, good question. Is there anything in my research that I, I have my feet firmly planted in midair, right? Uh, uh, yeah, I, I certainly, and I will tell you that. I mean, certainly some of the, uh, you know, speculation on exactly how these prophecies will be fulfilled, like Gog and Magog, I talk about that in, in my books. I, I have my best guess at how this is going to sort of unfold. But, you know, a lot of that, the scripture is silent on. We know what's going to happen. We don't know exactly when or what's going to lead up to it that prompts that, that battle of that northern aggressor coming against Israel. And, you know, good people take a lot of different views on that. A lot of people put it, as I did right here in this, uh, you know, midst, uh, between the rapture, uh, let's see, well, between the rapture and the... Uh, start of the tribulation where you can see that red dot that's where I believe it's going to happen and it's going to cause the antichrist to rise to fame some people put it at the beginning of the tribulation uh, in fact in my what lies ahead book I give I think eight views of where people think it could happen um, I would not be dogmatic about that Tim LaHaye in the series put it before the rapture but he did not hold that view I talked to him personally he did not hold that view uh, he just, they put it there because for artistic license it made the books sell better, and that was a, a, a Jerry Jenkins thing. Uh, but his view was the same as what I believe, that it, ha it happens after the rapture but before the tribulation. Um, also, the length of time between the rapture and the uh, tribulation, I hold the traditional view that we're probably talking about months, that within the chaos that happens after the rapture, things are going to fall apart very quickly and it's going to give rise to this need for a one world government and that's when it all comes about. But I have good friends and colleagues that, that think it could be as long as several years. I think Arnie Fruchtenbaum says it could be seven years, you know. So who knows? Again, where the Bible is silent, we want to, we want to allow for the fact that we, we can't be positive. Um, trying to think other things that... Uh, may not be theological or biblical that I'm unsure of. Um, yeah, I mean, to me, I'm growing more and more confident that, you know, the timetable is, is soon for entering into the end times. But I'm also acutely aware of the fact that God's people for generations have always thought the Lord was going to come back in their day. Uh, and so... I want to allow for the fact that I may live to a ripe old age and not see the return of the Lord, possibly. Uh, but I really try to come at that one objectively and just say, I understand my grandfather thought the rapture was going to happen in his day. But when I compare what was going on in his day with what's going on now and overlay that to Scripture, it's like, I just don't see any more 
much more frontiers for Satan to conquer. I feel like he's conquered it all. And it's like, at some point, the Lord's going to say, okay, enough's enough. And I, I just have a hard time knowing what their plan is of the 2020s and, you know, how they've, you know, accomplished, they've conquered gender, they've conquered language, they've conquered marriage, they've conquered life, or think they have. What more is there to do? They've got everything they need to accomplish what the picture that's painted in the tribulation is. So I just, I'm growing more and more confident, but at the same time, I don't want to cross over into that sensationalist camp that, you know, starts with the newspaper and then tries to make that fit the Bible. Um, but yeah, I mean, in general, I, I really do make it an effort to be upfront and say, look, this is me. Can't guarantee this is correct, but this is my best guess versus this is what the Bible says. You know, good question. Yeah. So I know this is a speculative from the standpoint of uh, timing, of course, but also the placement. Uh, of course, the Temple Institute in Israel is already pretty much for a new temple, and we know that during the tribulation, uh, the Antichrist will set up something that will allow the, the new temple to be rebuilt, or at least someplace, where all of those things will take place. We know currently the Dome of the Rock, the Mosque of Omar, all of that is on the Temple Mount. Um, is, is there any new speculative ideas on uh, will it be, there's, I know there's talk about another place on the Temple Mount that's offset and still right. allowed. You know, what have you read or seen lately? Yeah, so the question is about the rebuilding of the Temple and you know, the placement and timing and those types of things. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, there have been a lot of talk recently about a plan that would, that would make room for both the Dome of the Rock and the Temple that would still largely be in the same general area as the Temple Mount, the historic Herod's Temple. Uh, but remember, we got two temples coming, right? We've got the Antichrist's Temple, which will be destroyed at Armageddon. And then we've got the Millennial Temple that Ezekiel promises. Again, nine chapters with basically it reads like an architect's blueprint. Uh, and it's going to be much, much bigger. So in the millennium, the actual geography of Jerusalem changes, and it becomes much larger after all the devastation from Armageddon. And uh, so it's my view that the temple, the, the next temple, does not have to be built before the rapture, but that it could be, right? So obviously, it's kind of like Israel did not have to become a nation before the rapture. Theoretically, and the rapture certainly could have happened in 1946. <laughs> and then just according to Bible prophecy, prior to the rise of the Antichrist, you've got to have a temple for him to set up and desecrate. And plus the Jews have to have a place to give their sacrifices in the first three and a half years. So it didn't have to happen before the rapture. But the fact that it did is a huge indication that the stage is being set. Because for 1800 years we had no Israel, all of a sudden there's an Israel on the map. Same thing goes for the temple it would get my attention if they actually built a temple and I was still here. I'd be going, wow, this is one more sign. It'd be number two on my list after Israel becoming a nation, you know. But it doesn't have to be that because that gap of time that you see here on the screen after the rapture and before the start of the tribulation could possibly be when the temple is rebuilt. And it might, the building project might go on even into the first three and a half years so that it may be the time when it's completed and they have the ribbon cutting ceremony is the time when he walks in and desecrates it. I mean, I don't know, I'm just speculating. Um, but I don't think it's necessarily 
mandatory that the Dome of the Rock be destroyed before the Antichrist's temple is built. Now, it will be destroyed before Christ's temple is built because his temple is going to be massive and much bigger than Solomon's temple or Herod's temple or the Antichrist's temple. Good question. Anybody else? I'm curious if your viewpoint and thoughts on the prophecy on Revelation 16 12 with the Euphrates River drying up and the destruction that happens after that. And just kind of what you can tell us a little bit about that and also based on your end times block line that we have learned that we actually fit all the place in So, what was the last part of the question based on the timeline? What? For that prophecy. Yeah. So the question is about the uh, uh, drying up of the, of the Euphrates. So I've overlaid here the seal, trumpet, and bowl judgments. This is not to scale, but this is just kind of a visual to kind of show you that they're sequential. Um, again, amillennialists take the, what's called the recapitulation view of Revelation. And so they say the whole book of Revelation is just restating in different symbolic terms. Remember, everything is symbolism. It's the... It covers a multitude of sins. If you just say, I'm going to, that's a symbol, then everything becomes symbol and you get to determine what it means instead of letting the words on the page determine what it means. But to the, the amillennialists, meaning they don't believe in a literal earthly reign of Christ, uh, the seals are the church age, the trumpets are the church age, the bowls are the church age, the millennium is the church age, that thousand years. It's all symbolic. It's not a literal thousand years. It's, it's, it's the church age. So by the way, in case you were wondering, according to the amillennialist view, Satan is imprisoned right now during the church age. Which, wow, can't imagine what it would be like if he wasn't imprisoned. But anyway, he's, he's tied up. He's bound up. Satan's bound, right? Um, but the problem with that is, because amillennialists do believe that Christ is going to come back, but nothing happens after that. An see my chart on the screen here? This is the dispensational understanding of Scripture. An amillennialist chart would basically be a line and a dot at the end. That's it. That's the entirety of their chart. Because everything is now, except, yes, at the end of the age, Christ comes back, the saved go to heaven, the lost go to hell, it's all over. Nothing's literal. No literal antichrist, no literal seal, trumpet, and bowl judgments, no literal second, you know, reigning of Christ on earth, no literal temple, none of that. So, uh, so the problem with their view, among many other problems, is just no matter whether you take it literal or, or symbolic, arbitrarily, you know, Revelation 19 still comes before Revelation 20. I know that's you know, profound, but yeah, 19 comes before 20. And in 19, Christ comes back. And in 20, you've got the millennium. So you've got Christ coming back before the church, in their view. So it's just they have to really do hermeneutical gymnastics to kind of make it work. But as I showed in one of the sessions, the chart of Revelation, or uh, the book of Revelation, is actually pretty straightforward. It's not complicated at all. Revelation, when understood in its plain, normal sense, Simplest book in the world uh, to understand. Uh, we all use figures of speech. That's a very common technique. In fact, in my hermeneutics classes that I teach, I, I give, I don't know, 20 or 30 figures of speech that are very common in Scripture. Things like hyperbole, simile, uh, you know, litotes, metonym, uh, all kind, and we use them all the time. Um, in fact, I just use one. When I say we use them all the time, 
that's hyperbole. I don't mean I'm literally every word out of my mouth is a figure of speech. I'm just saying we frequently use them, right? So uh, I'm so hungry I could eat a horse. You know, that's we use figures of speech all the time. But you you can understand the meaning when you use a figure of speech, right? If I said to you I'm so hungry I could eat a horse, does that confuse you? Do you think that I really said I have a blue Volkswagen? Is that what you think I meant? Because that's how allegorical interpretation works. I say one thing, you get to insert whatever meaning you want. But if I said I'm so hungry I could eat a horse, what do, what do I mean? I'm pretty hungry. <laughs> I used a figure of speech to communicate that, but you understand what I mean. So the opposite of literal interpretation is not figurative. Literal interpretation includes figures of speech, and Revelation has a lot of them. The opposite of literal interpretation is allegorical interpretation, where you get to determine what the words on the page mean. But when you take it in a non-allegorical, literal meaning, it's pretty simple. As I mentioned, chapter 1 is the revelation of Christ. Chapters 2 and 3, letters to the historic churches. Chapters 4 and 5, the preparation for the wrath to come, called a theodicy, the justification for what God's about to do. And then the seven-year tribulation from chapter 6 to 19 till Christ comes back. Seals, trumpets, bowls. Now, again, because the Bible is not, you know, does not explicitly state uh, when the trumpets happen relative to the whole seven years, some people put the trumpets in the first half, some people put them in the second. But you have to put the seals on the first half because the Antichrist is the rider on the white horse, and so the wrath of God is the seal judgments, and that starts at the beginning. But I wouldn't you know, if you look at other scholars, they may put seals, trumpets in the first half, then the bowls in the second half. But as I study it, I put the trumpets in the second half. And then to your question, the bowls, although it's not uh, to scale here on this chart I, or, or on the one I just had up, I put the bowls literally in the final 36 to 72 hours. They're all related to the campaign of Armageddon and that final battle that you see happens there at the end of the tribulation. So again, the chart, just to fit it all in there, it makes it look like the bowls span you know, the last year and a half or so, or year and three quarters. But in reality, I think they're kind of bunched up right there at the end, one right after the other, drying up the Euphrates, preparing for the armies from the east and all, all of these, this final cosmic battle. So um, I think that was your question, right? Yeah. Somebody else? Any others? Yes. Um, why, why is the earth the devil's when God's the one that made it? Well, uh, the devil likes to, to, he's not creative. He's never created anything in his life. So he likes to steal things and he likes to call things his own. He tried to steal God's throne in heaven and now he's trying to steal God's creation. Uh, it is God's earth and someday God will recreated in sinless perfection and all of its glory the way he created it before we messed it up but right now satan thinks it's his and so this is his playground and he's doing everything he can to to make it his own all right let's take maybe one more question i don't want to cut anybody off and i'm happy to stick around and answer questions uh, you know one-on-one -on -one as well but anybody have one more question the most powerful profound important question of the day the one that we're going to leave her going, wow, the conference was pretty good, but that last question was phenomenal. Okay, no pressure. Yeah, the days of Noah. 
Yeah. 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 So um, the question is about Jesus' reference to the, the analogy of the flood and the days of Noah. And uh, I was hoping I could get out of here without having to address the days of Noah because uh, it gets me in trouble because I don't take the view that a lot of people take on that. Um, so let me give you an overview of the Olivet Discourse again real quick because that's where this analogy comes from. So uh, real quick. Jesus in Matthew 24 and 25, Luke 21 and Mark 13 is answering the question of the disciples. If the kingdom's not going to come now like we thought it was, when is it going to come? When is this age going to end and the kingdom age going to come? We really would like to know. As I talked about this morning, they were obsessed with the kingdom. They want to know who gets to sit where, who gets to be the greatest, what are they going to get when they get there, all of that kind of stuff. The final words they say to Jesus before he ascends to heaven is, okay, are you finally going to restore your kingdom? They were obsessed with the kingdom. And so Jesus answers the question. And in verses, the first, up to verse 14, chapter, verses 3 to 14 in Matthew 24, it's general signs that correspond perfectly with the seal judgments. In fact, I'll just roll through those since I got that chart right now. He talks about false Christs. Well, in the seal judgments, the Antichrist is unveiled. He talks about war. In the second seal judgment, the people are killing each other. He talks about famine. Then you've got famine in the third seal judgment. You've got death. In the fourth seal judgment, one quarter of their population dies. Jesus then talks about martyrdom. You've got the cries for the justice from the martyrs in the fifth seal judgment. Then you've got the cosmic signs that, that accompany his return. You've got all sorts of cosmic disturbances in the seal judgment. So the Olivet Discourse is all about the tribulation, all about of the future judgment. Then in chapter in verses 15 to 29 is, is signs that get more specific the closer you get to his return, such as the abomination of desolation. He says, when you see that, head for the hills. Then, then he comes back. You've got the lightning stretching from the east to the west. No one will need to say, hey, did he come back or not? If, he, if you have to ask that, he didn't come because the whole earth will see him. He comes back, takes the throne of his glory. And by the time you get to 31, verse 31, he's come back. The entire rest of the Olivet Discourse from Matthew 24, 32 all the way to the end of chapter 25 is the application section, the practical application. He's answered their question, and now like a good preacher, he's saying, so what? So the first thing he says is when you see the fig tree, you know, learn the lesson from a fig tree. When you see the leaves sprouting, you know my coming is near. In the same way, when you see all these signs, you know my coming is near. In fact, the generation that sees these signs will be the generation that sees my coming. And then he says, he gives a series of watchfulness warnings. And, he, and those include Noah, the householder, the virgins, um, the uh, thief in the, the house. So there's four of them there. And the first one is Noah. And what he says is, you know, remember what it was like in Noah's day. They were warned that a flood was coming. They ignored the warning. And the flood came and swept them away in judgment. In the same way... You're being warned that I'm coming back. And that generation that's alive at that time, don't be deceived. He says that four times. Don't be deceived. Because, you know, you're going to be warned. You're being warned now. Be ready. Because if you don't, then you're going to be swept away into judgment. In fact, it's very clear when you compare Luke's account of the same story in Luke 17. It's not the Olivet Discourse. Jesus told this analogy on two different occasions. But Luke makes it clear that the one taken is taken away in judgment. He says the flood came and destroyed them all. 
And the reason that's important is that a lot of people mistakenly take this passage about Noah as referring to the rapture. And it, let's admit, it, it sounds kind of rapturesque. Two men will be in a field, one taken, the other left. Kind of sounds like the rapture, right? Larry Norman wrote a whole song about that back in the 70s. He was correct theology, wrong passage. Uh, because in the Matthew 24 context, the ones taken away are taken away in judgment, just as it was in Noah's day. In Noah's day, who was left behind to inhabit the earth? The righteous. Who was taken off the earth in judgment? The unrighteous. The same thing will be true at the second coming of Christ. Some will be left behind. The sheep, come ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom. Some will be taken away, and Luke tells us, destroyed. So that unless the rapture destroys us, that's not the rapture, right? So when, that's, the, that's the brunt of the analogy. And so to compare the two, I have put together this chart. Uh, in the global days of Noah, the global flood days of Noah, the world is warned of a flood. At the second coming, the world will be warned that the judge is coming. Only one way to avoid judgment, only one way to avoid judgment at the second coming. Many are deceived and ignore the warnings. Many are, will be deceived and ignore the warnings of Christ's return. Those left behind on the earth are the righteous, Noah's family. At the second coming, those left behind on the earth are the righteous, believers. Uh, the ones taken off the earth are taken away in judgment, swept away by the flood in Noah's day. At the second coming, those taken off the earth are taken away in judgment, cast into the everlasting fire. The righteous repopulate the earth once the flood waters recede, like they did in Noah's day. And in, in the second coming, the righteous will repopulate the earth after the millennium begins. So I do not take that Jesus was intending to imply there that everything that was going on in Noah's day is going to happen when I return. He's simply making an analogy about being ready. They're called the watchfulness analogies or watchfulness parables or, you know, uh, if the thief had known what hour his house was going to be broken into, he would have been ready with 357 of his friends and he wouldn't have lost his belongings, right? Uh, that's essentially what Jesus was saying. So be ready. So I don't, I do think that we are going to see a resurgence in the Nephilim like they had in, in the days of the flood, but I don't get that from this passage. I get that from other passages. Uh, I just think we over, over, we make too much about this analogy, right? If I, if I said in an analogy, I'm, you know, I'm so hungry I could eat a horse, uh, I'm not, or that's not a good, that's not a good illustration. If I, if I make an analogy like it's, you know, it's as, it's, it's as cold as winter out there, because maybe where you're from, 60 degrees is cold, I don't know. Um, I'm not saying that it's snowing, that we have to get out our snow shovels, that there's ice falling, that there's, you know, all, I'm just saying, I'm just using an analogy, using like or as, it's called a simile, it's as cold as winter. I'm not saying that everything that's associated with winter is also happening right now outside. You might walk into a well-refrigerated, air-conditioned room and say, man, it's cold in here, it's as cold as winter. Well, I'm not suggesting that there's snow on the ground and, and all that. So in the same thing, Jesus wasn't trying to say that everything that's happening in Noah's day is, is going to be happening at the second coming. He's simply saying, just as in Noah's day they were ill-prepared in spite of the warnings, many will be ill-prepared in spite of the warnings at my return. Well, thank you guys very much. Uh, I'm happy to stick around and ask questions. Thank you, Pastor Dwayne. What a blessing. What a great church. You guys are honored to have Brother Dwayne as your pastor and a great rich heritage of teaching the Bible. Keep it up. And keep uh, proclaiming the gospel and keep proclaiming the return of the Lord, uh, two, key, two key things. Thank you, guys, and God bless.